0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host Jocelyn Pearl and today we have not one but two C-level executives joining us and sharing all about their career journeys and how they got to where they are today. We also get into running a patient-centric biotech uh, with Emily McGuinness. She's from Tasia Therapeutics and Working on de-extinction, something a little different than a patient focused biotech uh, with Claire Aldridge, who's the chief strategist at Form Bio, which was spun out of Colossal Biosciences. You might have heard about them in the news recently as they would like to de-extinct the dodo bird. Uh, very interesting missions and motivations across these two companies and i think it's a great conversation and you'll learn a lot from their experience so thanks so much for listening and sharing lady scientists podcast awesome so today we have a first for lady scientist podcast we actually have two c-level executives Uh, joining us today and um, this is the first time we've had someone, you know, two guests at this level Uh, and I'm really excited to dive into both Claire and Emily's career journeys, what's led them to their current positions and also talk a little bit about their uh, experience and what it's like working at these amazing companies. Uh, Both Form Bio and Tasia Therapeutics are Two companies that I really admire in the space um, of biotech and I think are doing really interesting things to advance science in general and also patient advocacy Uh, so I'm excited to jump in so thanks so much for taking the time to join us today thanks for having us
1: yes thank you it's my pleasure
0: so let's start off with Emily I we've never had a chief patient advocacy and external affairs officer on the show before that's such an interesting job title. I'm excited to dive into what that means. Uh, can you walk us through your background and the types of roles that led up to this position? Sure. Um, boy, it's been it's been quite a road. I I I would say um, I think
1: I have the best job ever in biotech, <laughs> in that you know my role allows me to work directly with the communities and um, the disease states that we're we're serving. Um, I can tell you a little bit more about that um, later, but how you asked how I got here. Um, I wouldn't have you wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed that I'd be in this position, frankly. I, I feel like um, I started my career in pharma over 20 years ago um, in sales. I was a field sales rep for a pretty large um, pharma company. And then after about six or seven years, I um, went to a small orphan company that was specializing in um, neuroscience um, products. And so I was in sales for a bit, but then that led me to um, go in house, where I was um, worked in several different marketing roles. And in that space, you know, I, I what I, what I'll take a step back and say that is that I love science. So I have a bachelor's in education with a um, concentration in biology. I was a biology major for many years and played around with going into um, other scientific roles, whether it was in healthcare and and somehow landed on, okay, let let me get out with a degree in education, a concentration in biology. And what I found was sales and then going into marketing that I could really leverage my education background to help teach science. You know whether it was to, um, to to physicians through marketing materials, but a lot of also what, what, how do we educate patients and families? So that's the first time when I went into marketing where I thought, wow, there's really such an unmet need to make sure that we understand what the patient needs are, what the caregivers need in order to understand the products that we're, we're, um, we're asking them to, to consider. Um, so, and, and at that point in my career, I, I worked in advocacy, but it was almost an under under the marketing umbrella. And as my career progressed, that was the first time I, I worked in the rare disease space. It was in the epilepsy space and also in, in neurology and then for a small biotech. And that's when I fell in love with small biotechs, neurology <laughs> and, and rare and, and also advocacy. So... Um, Since that time, I've been at several different startup companies, um, one progressing in my marketing career. But at one point, I made a switch and led uh, medical affairs for a while. So I, I had finished my master's in public health later in life, which helped me expand the science, but also think about how can we Um, educate communities and learn from communities in order to to change health outcomes. So that was really rewarding for me. Um, Took that into a medical affairs role. um, But then shortly after that, um, went to a small biotech again, um, the first gene therapy company that I worked at called Avexis. And at Avexis, I um, again, in, in a small company, I had a number of different hats. I worked in marketing for a while and then I really focused my efforts on um, advocacy and government affairs work. Um, where at, at that point, I, I one realized the importance of having one function that can serve as a strategic partner across the organization to one, understand the needs of the community Work directly with our patient advocacy groups who know these rare diseases more than anybody um, else. Oftentimes, the, the 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 physicians don't have as much insight because they're so rare. Um, so, I, and in that role, I, I with my government affairs hat was able to work on newborn screening initiatives and work on one of the first gene therapies um, to be launched for spinal muscular atrophy, which was. An incredible honor and incredibly rewarding. Um, after um, my time at Avexis, I was asked to join Tasha So that's will be three years in April. Um, and I was humbled to be asked to, to start and, and really focus at the C suite level in patient advocacy. Um, and you know, it was a bit of a shift. So at, at Avexis, my role was focused on um. Preparing for the approval of our gene therapy and and how do we help educate patients and families prior to the approval and after. Whereas at TASHA, we had so many, we had preclinical programs that we were trying to bring forward to the FDA. And we really embraced at TASHA patient-focused drug development. And, and, And so what we what I spent a lot of time on there me a pause sorry so i don't know if you can hear the dogs or is it not okay, okay. i can't hear them very well no, oh, good. but okay. It's all so, good <laughs> okay sorry so 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 what 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 being at tasha allowed me to do was to focus on patient focused drug development so as we were bringing preclinical programs into the clinic we learned directly from our advocacy groups and patients directly what were the outcomes that matter to them most so as we were developing our clinical trial protocols as we are uh, we thinking about patient educational materials for them to go into the clinical trial we're gathering all of that information and ensuring that not only do we do is the patient voice heard when we're having interactions with regulatory bodies but also um, And um, we're also taking that information and and educating, um, whether it's a PI or or a physician, about what what we've learned from the patients about what they want to know about the clinical trial.
2: And that, I think, was really interesting at Taysha, if you don't mind my jumping in, was that idea that making sure that when we're designing those endpoints for those clinical trials, they're the things that matter to the families and the patients because they're the ones that um, are going to be trusting trusting us to be on the journey to develop these drugs and so we want to know what would make a difference is it um, you know keeping them ambulatory is it you know sight like what are the things that really impact the quality of life for those patients and how do we keep that at the forefront of what we're trying to develop
0: That's so interesting and as someone who's never worked on this end of, drug development. Um, I'm curious, what does it mean? I mean, in addition to clarifying these endpoints for clinical trials, what does it mean to have that patient voice in the room as far as um, these decisions? Like, are you interviewing these patient advocacy groups and then relaying that information to the team at Tayshia and the FDA? What, what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's, we start with the advocacy
1: groups and we start by learning um, from them what they believe the unmet needs are, what, what, what do they think are the most burdensome symptoms? And and of course, collaborating really closely with our clinical team as they're developing the protocol. So trying to understand what they're planning from literature reviews. And then we, we actually work with the advocacy groups to recruit Patients and care or caregivers, depending on, on the situation. Oftentimes oh, in the focus groups, then yeah. the focus groups. Exactly. So we, so we, we bring the, the patients in, we invite them to, for a focus group. We first um, do some online surveys and we actually COVID was kind of a cool opportunity to, take a different approach. At my time at Avexis, we actually would do a focus group in person for a day, which was wonderful. Well, COVID, we couldn't do that. So what we did was we did this online forum that was allowed the patients um, and the, or the caregivers to interact with each other. And then we'd bring them together on a focus group where we'd have the clinical team sit in the back room so they could hear what the patients and families were saying. And time and time again, whether it was at Avexis or at Tasha the The caregivers or patients felt so felt like they were lit, heard, and they really appreciated that we were listening, and they felt like they did have a seat at the table, and and we were able to then sh- you know follow up and say thank you here's what we learned and summarize that back to them, and it was incredibly rewarding for them. Um, we've even taken some of this uh, what we've learned and presented it at some of their patient conferences. And, and also to different physician groups. So to expand um, the data out there, but it's, we're, we're definitely connecting directly with the patients. And oftentimes what I hear from the families is they, they thank us because they, they feel like they've been heard by us. And and it also serves as such a great internal motivator for the, for the team. Yeah.
2: Well, and when you think about rare disease, you touched on it, Emily, the way that the families know more about these diseases than the doctors do, right? They know more about the gene. They know more about like pedigrees. They know so much. Um, and so it really is important, I think, to have them as part of this process because they really are the experts.
1: Yeah, I totally agree.
0: Sounds like Incredibly rewarding work. Um, I'm curious from more of a business perspective, how decisions are made as far as which diseases to target? Because we know that there's so many rare diseases out there, um, I think on the order of 10,000 potentially different conditions. Um, And a lot of these conditions have very small patient populations. How does a company go about um, deciding what to focus on and which drugs to, to work on?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great question, especially considering the environment that we're in where funding has has um, not been as great for, for biotech companies. Um, so typically, you know, drug development in the past was based on numbers, right, to your point, you know like how how many patients can we reach um and 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 and, and what's the unmet need i think there, not i think i know there's been significant change in that realm given the um the 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 things out there to help to um
2: i think like a molecular medicines is what i like yeah. to call
1: them right like yeah.
2: we're now we're now able to develop disease modifying therapies Gene therapies, potential cures, ASOs, but but really addressing that fundamental problem. And I think that has changed what we think about as what's addressable. Yes,
1: agree, agree. And my and and there's now incentives for small companies to go into the rare disease space, which is amazing. And so oftentimes it's yeah, the science is out there. Is it going to work? And I think that's what's cool about some of these platforms now is you, we we've seen that they can work and and see a benefit in the patient population. So it's less about the numbers, um, and and really a lot about the high end met need and and, and Cam, is this feasible? Do we think we can um, see a benefit in this patient population? Is this, Would you is agree that
2: science path direct? Well, and I think that that's like for you know, kind of what I like about this class of drugs versus small molecules mm-hmm. is, you know, gene therapy, cell therapy, ASOs, the whole, you know, again, what I call molecular medicines is the science has been de-risked more than for small molecules. Yeah. And what we have the opportunity to do is to start thinking about how do we make these more um, cost-effective? How do we make them uh, more accessible uh, you know, get them to people in, in areas that are not traditionally served by high-end academic medical centers. And so, you know, I think that's the opportunity that we've got here is we know that a great scientist like a Stephen Gray or a, um, you know, Jim Wilson can design something really clever for these. And then it's, and then it's a matter of moving it through the approval process. And that's it, just to me, there's there's more opportunity to to fundamentally change the the course and the trajectory of these diseases.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's really just exciting and hopeful. And we, you know, yeah. we chat with folks from the rare disease community on the show, and um, you know, I'm lucky enough to get to see the amazing work that some of these parents of children with rare diseases, uh, some of the work that they're doing to try to advance cures for their children. Um, and it's I think it's just really encouraging that people on the industry side are thinking about these problems and, and, you know, are hammering away at them. And it isn't just the case that most biotech companies are going after, you know, diseases with huge patient populations, for instance. So um that's that's really exciting, so I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you Claire about your role you're now a chief strategy officer at form bio uh, and i'm just curious what your career journey has looked like and what led you to uh, this new position.
2: My career journey has been um, I've had a, a variety of different roles a biotech investor one of um, you know I always like to joke that you can't really call yourself a biotech investor if you don't have some big things that you passed on. Um, we passed on a Vexus uh, probably in 2012, 2013. So I did biotech investing, I've been in a number of startups and I've also been in the commercialization world at academic medical centers. The place I like to be in is the the conversation around how do we, understand whether or not this science has an application in the marketplace that makes um, economic sense as well as an unmet need. I love science like Emily, but I don't wanna do science. Um, I love that there are people who want to do science and make those discoveries, but I really like partnering with those people to understand what is a path to put this into the marketplace where it can benefit people and you know change outcomes. I definitely believe that We have an obligation to the taxpayers, right, who support our academic medical centers, the NIH, all of these different groups to try to figure out what is the application of this science, not just the discovery. So um, that's been the thread that's gone through my career. And um, I remember when I first met the founding team for Colossal Biosciences, you know, they're working to to de-extinct the woolly mammoth, the the thylacine, and the recently announced Dodo, Um, and I was it, it it broadened the way I thought about science. I've always been in the human therapeutic space, and um, you know the idea that we can develop science to do something you know like this big moonshot um, really kind of made me think. Let's think about science a little more broadly. And um, the thing I especially love about Colossal is how many kids now think biology is cool. Um, So that's, you know, I always joke that, you know, I've been working 25 years trying to make people think biology is cool, and they did more in a month. Um, So uh, that's been kind of of a a little humbling. Um, But what I loved about what they were building, and after my time at UT Southwestern, where I saw a lot of technologies coming into our, our tech transfer office, around bioinformatics, MLAI, and it was coming in all over campus. You know, the bioinformatics department, sure, but surgery and radiation oncology and neurology and oncology, they were all bringing this IP in that we didn't know what to do with. And there wasn't a a path to do something with. And then the Colossal team was building a platform to do a lot of this sophisticated molecular analysis around genomic analysis, variant calling, CRISPR editing, all of this stuff with an MLAI backdrop and the recognition that there were other problems that could solve um, using this platform. And it was it was fun getting to, to sit in the room with them and, and come up with use cases. You know, what are places if you've been in biology for a long time, you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking that software was going to solve all of these problems and, and having biology remind us that it's very complicated and a lot of redundancy and um, not that simple. But to think about with the advances that we've made in this kind of machine learning, AI, bioinformatics, what are some discrete problems that can be solved with this that are conducive to that kind of solution? And so it was just through those conversations, you know, there are a bunch of software people who are learning um, science and I'm a scientist who wanted to, to learn more about how do we apply these, these new technologies to problems in biology um instead of using them to to do better targeted ads <laughs> which they're very good at um let's try to figure out how to use it to make these kind of drugs that again i think can be transformative for so many diseases how do we make them better how do we make them more cost effective um you know how do we take this science and really take it into the the clinic in a way that that can benefit patients
0: it seems like from first blush, Form Bio is working on tools that could have a big impact on the space across multiple companies. Um, does Form Bio consider itself a tech bio company? And I'm curious how you feel about that term.
2: We love that term. We definitely consider ourselves a tech bio company, and um, you know we want to bring together the different skill sets. You know what what. Kind of convinced me to join the company was the fact that we had an amazing team of bioinformatics phds amazing team of phds in ml and ai and then an amazing team of of a user experience and programming and and making products that have been very successful products and the marriage of those three areas was very interesting to me the idea of bringing different expertise putting everybody I kind of like to think of it as like everybody shook their backpack out on the table and then we saw what was there and it was something that was different and solving some problems in the space that haven't really been solved before. Biology has not really had that sophisticated intuitive user interface. Um, You know, people who want to do bioinformatics or this kind of work, they have to learn programming Python, if they want to do their image um, development are shiny those kind of things like let's make all of that drag and drop let's let's make wizards and do this kind of stuff that that they some of these people honed these skills making incredibly addictive video games so they know how to make a sticky product let's use that in a way that allows scientists to move their science forward faster it's
0: a, a very Exciting goal. I, I just think the space uh, of science in general has been starved of that high-quality mm-hmm. software uh, product and and user experience like you you spoke about. Um, and you know, I was just talking about this last night. Where when I was in graduate school, um, Benchling first became available as a electronic lab notebook. There were, of course, other products in that space and and still are, but. It's become one of the more dominant uh, electronic lab notebooks because of its um, user interface and and you know having a little bit of a cleaner look uh as a piece of software Um, but there really haven't been a lot of major players in this space and so i think that's why the the meme of tech bio is exciting and hopefully um companies like yours uh, continue to make some headway in this space um i want to ask because i've heard people speak about uh some of the challenges and differences culturally um of these different types of teams right people who work in software they're used to moving fast and breaking things. It's a very different uh, state of mind than for those of us who work on drug development and are hoping to, you know, work on products that uh, help patients and improve their lives. Um, so I'm just curious uh, to hear your perspectives as far as, you know, this new team that you're on, how that kind of compares contrasts to uh, working at Taisha and maybe if Emily wants to share anything as well uh, about her experience with that.
2: Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because they do want to move fast and break things and science doesn't move fast, you know, kind of by definition. But I think the thing that has been really interesting to watch scientists get a little more comfortable with with the way programming kind of works now in these two-week sprints and you want a minimal viable product and, you know, kind of breaking things down into smaller chunks that are more achievable, I think that keeps scientists a little more optimistic and motivated. And then, you know, just that, doing that hard work to say, what do we need to do to show that this works, that we can feel confident about it? You know, scientists tend to want to go all the way to the end before they even want to tell anybody about it. And culturally, just bringing in this different way of doing things and helping them understand that we can break this down into smaller projects that then lead to something that that we're proud of and comfortable sharing with the world, even if it's not done yet. And so that's been a, a... culturally something and and sometimes we have to remind the scientists like no this is okay this is totally okay to think about it like this but but bringing that kind of perspective into biology has been interesting Emily do you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah no it's it's interesting i i the thing that came to mind is having worked in um a little bit different but having worked in big pharma versus small pharma you know i feel like the thing i love about these small biotech companies that i've had the Pleasure of working with over the years is is early on you have a small team so you're very nimble you can move very quickly, um and and I I, I see that at at what what we've done at taisha what we did at avexus as well, you know you it's really a roll up your sleeves environment you know there might be there's something that needs to get done it's like well you throw your hat in and and, and I'll work on that, um you know I I. I would say what's been such a pleasure at Tayshia is throughout the company, everybody's embraced patient centricity as a culture. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest in my career as pushing the role of advocacy and including the patient, it's it, it was tough early on because- you know, people didn't understand. Well, if we ask them, what if we don't do what they say? <laughs> you know, kind of that same education. It's like, well, that's okay. You know, we're asking for their opinion, and we'll let families know that sometimes we can't. You know, always, always, you know, respond in that way. But I, I was, it's been very refreshing at Tasha because. Cross-functionally, you know, Claire saw it. Uh, you know, from our regulatory colleagues, our clinical, the scientists, and and even you you see it working with UT Southwestern. The team there is so involved in patient advocacy, and that's one of the groups we we partner with from a scientific perspective. And it's it's been very. The entire UT Southwestern Medical Center is celebrating Rare
2: Disease Day. Yeah, they've got a selfie station to stand with your stripes.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Oh, I love that. Yeah, they are oh they're they're amazing. So it's been um so for me it's yeah, it's like that, it's so great to to have that patient-centric culture where you have people even in finance or IT or um, you know, other groups who are just just wanna wanna learn from the patients because that helps them really rally around what we're doing. So love that.
2: Kind of going back to my investing days and, and my tech transfer days, one of the things you see a lot in this space is you see a lot of really cool science that people are really excited about that don't actually solve a problem in the marketplace, but people get distracted by how cool it is. And I think about that a lot as, you know, solutions in search of a problem. And I think when you bring the patients into the conversation, you're not a solution in search of a problem anymore. You're actually going to find out what the problem is. Exactly. And I think that talking to that end user, you know, anytime you start up a, co- a company, you do that customer discovery, right? What do you need? What do you want? And I think when you talk about drug discovery and drug development for these rare diseases, the customer discovery are those families. And how do you say, I want to solve these problems, but I need to know which of these problems are the ones that really matter to you? you
0: so true. I love that. It's almost like the, in this space, you're deferring to the actual problem and the patient community and um, really focusing on how you can have an impact in that space, um, which is also the space I like to work in. So <laughs> I really appreciate hearing those thoughts. Um, I'm curious because it it seems to me as someone who's more at the you know mid-level manager setting i'm a, a senior scientist at a biotech company um you both have gone through some interesting transitions it seems like you both are flexible in some way you've kind of shifted gears a couple times in your career can you talk about um that mindset of flexibility and adaptability and how that has led to uh, you now being in these uh, C-level positions that you're at?
1: I can start. Like I, said, <laughs> like I said. You should
2: probably have... do a podcast on that. <laughs> oh,
1: totally, totally. I think I never went into my career saying, this is what I want to do. Even, it, I always hated the question that they'd ask you on the performance review or goal setting to say, what do you want to do in five years? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I guess it's, it's, I, you, you said it very nicely. It's, it is the flexibility mindset, but for me, it's also just being open and maybe that's part of it. Just being open to what comes. Um, I found like, I, yeah, throughout my career, it's, I, I've just, I've one followed really great people. So, you know, I think, I've had the great pleasure of working with people that um, and that I've been connected with that maybe have gone to a new startup and they're like, hey, come do this. I'm like, okay. Or, you know, I I think about my time doing uh, medical affairs. That was an opportunity because no one was really doing the job in this small startup. There wasn't a position there. And I went to our CMO and I'm like, kind of need a head of medical affairs. Can I help you there? And she's like, sure. (laughs) So for me, it's it's I guess a balance of you're right, being having a flexible mindset, not having a set idea of what I want to do, you know, and and seeing an opportunity and seeing saying, hey, i can I can make this work." and 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 it, it goes to just, and I think that some things that's that's hard for for people to do, and in particular, I think women, is to then ask you know ask for those opportunities um and and it will surprise you <laughs> because they Absolutely. they come true
0: yeah
2: yeah so uh, similar i think you know being open to to you know kind of agree with what emily had said but i think too it is about um Taking the opportunities that come their way and making sure that you're still learning and you're still able to be curious. So, curiosity has really driven a lot of my career is, well, that looks like something I don't know anything about. um, And I think I could learn it. And, you know, I often think about things in two year increments. You know, the first year is learning it, the second year is mastering it, and then thinking about where do you want to go with it. Uh, and, I'm, you know, you can't master all things in, in two years, but to, to really think about it from that perspective, am I still learning? Am I still growing? Is it still meeting my need to be curious and to, to solve problems? And that's what I really like to do. And so it's it's a lot of taking the opportunities that come your way and then figuring out how to make the most of them, how to make them bigger than they were even originally. And, and again, that goes to Emily's point, you have to ask for that, um, but people are very willing to um, allow you to have those additional responsibilities, especially if uh, at a startup where there's, you have to, to wear lots of hats, But I think for me, I've had great luck working for people who appreciated that I wanted to keep growing and wanted to keep learning, and they worked hard um, to be my champion. And and I think that's something to to share with young women, that it's great to have a mentor. It is. It's wonderful. But it's even more important to have a champion, somebody who is internal, whether it's to your organization or to another organization that you hope to to one day go to, to, to be advocating on your behalf when you're not in the room
1: yeah I don't know about you Claire but I I I still say I don't know what I want to be when I grow up
2: oh my mom says (laughs) I don't have to grow up till she does and so I'm golden right right. well and I think I don't I don't want to stop learning when I want to when I stop learning when I'm when I stop being curious then I probably need to to step away and get out of other people's way
1: yeah
2: I love that
0: I, I love those responses. I, I I'm learning so much from both of you. Um, I want to dig into um the transitions a little bit more because you've both been at multiple companies. What what led to you knowing it was time to move on? Or you know, were there particular you know is there a particular instance you can think back to where you thought it you know it's time for me to to take on this next step and um, that will, you know, provide X, Y, Z. I'm just curious if you could walk us through like how you handle those types of decisions, because obviously you both uh, I'm sure are, you know, um, approached for opportunities all the time. And I think that's another thing to kind of keep in balance uh, over the course of a career is you know, how much uh, time or loyalty you're giving to a particular company or team. Um, So I'd love to learn from your experience with that.
2: I can share a little bit first that one of the things I had to, I made a few mistakes early in my career where I chased either a title or money or something like that. And it really led me because then I had to unravel that. And it really led me to defining what it was that I wanted to have as my guiding principle, right? Like I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I know what I my guiding principle is. And that is I want to be a translator of science between scientists and non-scientists that ultimately keeps in mind the impact to the patient, to whoever. So it's allowed me to do different jobs that that maybe, you wouldn't have thought were a good fit, but it allowed me to do that. And so once I made that guiding principle, I could hold jobs up to that. Hmm. And then the older I get and the more wisdom I accumulate, I think a, a big part of it is, and, you know, and Emily mentioned, she's worked with with the the same people on multiple occasions. I've worked with the same people on multiple occasions as well. You really learn when you're with a good team and you're on a good team there, you want to to make that magic happen again. And so, um, you know, there might be a time where you move on from that opportunity because it makes sense at the time and you need to go get some additional skill sets or additional experience. But when you have some people that you really enjoy working with, that you enjoy solving problems and you enjoy having what I like to call respectful disagreement, to be able to, to talk through areas of different points of view with understanding and understanding their perspective and coming to a consensus, um, it really makes for a delightful workday.
1: I agree. I, I think I've always said that you could work at the greatest company um, and that you could have a team though that that isn't collegial, isn't you know, um easy to work with and you could be be miserable. And so I I like your idea of a guiding principle, Claire. We'll talk more about that later. I might (laughs) think about that. For me, it's been... Well,
2: my other one is that I'm a friendly immunologist. That's my other guiding principle and everyone needs one. (laughs) Yes.
1: Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And, you know, for me though, a couple of things, you know, I'm a big believer of going with your gut and trusting your instincts, you know, um one of the hardest jobs that I did leave was, was Avexis. Um, we had been acquired by Novartis. Um, and the thing that I've learned about myself through that experience is, was reinforcing that I really appreciate, and enjoy being within a small biotech and Novartis coming in was amazing for the company, amazing for the community. But as things moved on, I realized that the culture, the, The environment wasn't as the fit that I was looking for, and I say it was really hard to leave because I had become incredibly connected not only to the advocacy groups that I worked with, I was doing great work in newborn screening, um, and, and also, you know, we had we, you know, really connected with with the patient communities. But I realized after taking time, you know, listening to my instincts, and and then being, you know, that I that it was it was time for me to to. To move on you know and and that's that was a tough decision because i again great things were happening it just wasn't wasn't the right you know wasn't the right fit for me as the company evolved and that's a tough it, it was a tough decision to make and i put a lot of thought into that um that as well but i guess it goes back to i always say trust your instincts trust your gut um you know you have to give it some time and sit with it um and and then you'll know what the right the right next move and right path. I always feel like once one opportunity closes, whether you close it yourself or it's closed, you know, another way, then there's there's always something better around the corner. And in hindsight, you learn something about that, that past experience. So I've never regretted um some of the moves that I've the moves that I've made in, in my career. I feel like they kind of one builds upon another um, to bring me where. So it'll be interesting to see, you know. I don't know, like
0: it's like,
1: yeah, where it goes.
2: Yeah. Well, I think for for people where you are in your career, I think appreciating that it's not necessarily linear the way it used to be, right? When you chose to go to this college, that meant you didn't go to this other college. When you chose this PhD program or this PI for your PhD, that means you didn't choose somebody else. But when you get to where, where you are now, where Emily and I are, you make a choice and you can pivot. And I think that um, just an an appreciation of that, that each decision is is not the final decision. And that even if it doesn't work out, you can learn something from it. And maybe all you learned is what you don't wanna do, but that's still knowledge, right? It's a nice negative experiment Um, and that you can then continue to grow and figure out what you do wanna do.
0: That's that's great advice, and it it reminds me of uh, some of the sentiments from a, a book I read this year, Four Thousand Weeks, um, where he, he quotes some philosophers around you know choice and uh, contrasting um, choosing something over this like fear of missing out uh, that a lot of people suffer from where they feel incapacitated to make decisions. Um, And his point is kind of that when we choose one thing, we're, we're, you know, that's a sign of love, that's a sign of devotion and um, that has value, you know, like because we have a finite number of days and a finite number of weeks, um, we have to make decisions about what we're gonna spend our time doing and um, there can be beauty in that, right? Um, So I really love that. So I'd love to talk about some of your career highlights, some of the scientific or clinical highlights. Um, Maybe you can think back to a particular day uh, when a drug got approved or you got to make that call to that patient advocacy group. Um, If you could just share an anecdote like that with us, that would be great. Maybe we can start with Emily. Emily. Yeah, I will say um, the most
1: rewarding, because there's been many, but you know, when I was at Avexis, um, when we were able to reach out to the families that participated in our phase one trial, we reached out, had phone conversations with them. That was so heartwarming. But then we brought them all in person to meet with them to understand what they learned in the clinical trial and they brought their kids and meeting these kids that had been dosed with gene therapy, that in the transformational impact it had on their lives was so incredibly rewarding. Um, that would be number one. Um, second to that, I, I mentioned earlier, that I worked on newborn screening. So with SMA, these kids are born, um, and the the diag for all rare diseases, there's this diagnostic odyssey where patients are going from doctor to doctor trying to figure out what their kids are di- you know, what their diagnosis is. Well, for SMA, along with our advocacy partners and parents, we pulled together. We, we were able to work towards bringing newborn screening on the um, national panel. And when that news came through, that, again, was a cr- incredibly rewarding because what it meant is it set the path for screening at each state. And to look back now that, that almost I think actually all, all states are screening for SMA, that these par- parents don't have to go through this diagnostic odyssey now is, is yeah incredibly rewarding to me.
2: Emily's career has been much more rewarding than mine <laughs> mine has been I,
1: I doubt that
2: <laughs> um at a at a different level but but similarly the the venture fund I was with our very first investment was a company called Peloton Therapeutics and it was Peloton the drug company not Peloton the bikes and they were acquired by Merck but but a similar thing that was a drug that um you know, I've been in Dallas for a very long time. UT Southwestern is an institution I love greatly. And that was a, a perfect example of the virtuous cycle that should happen at every academic medical center where the target was identified by a researcher, um, the a researcher in the, the cancer center, that target went over to the, the high throughput screening lab in the biochemistry department. They found some some hits. Uh, nothing like a development candidate or a lead, but those hits went into a company. The company developed that, did medicinal chemistry, opened a trial. That trial then came back to UT Southwestern and benefited the patients there, and then ultimately was approved um, for one indication so far. Many more to come, I imagine, and that it's a it's a novel mechanism addressing the the lack of of oxygen. It's HIF two alpha um, hypoxia induced factor that tumors have. And so, you know, even during the development of that, it was hard to get to a maximum tolerated dose because it's not turned on unless you have hypoxia. Um, So just getting to be part of that whole circle, that virtuous cycle of what we love that happens when our researchers are informed by the clinic and then, you know, can, can develop something that can then come back to the clinic.
0: Wow, really incredible experiences that you both have had in your careers and, and I love uh, hearing highlights. I think it's always important to um, remind folks why we're doing what we're doing. Um, just the other day there was a video shared of a, a child with a rare disease named Ryan who recently received a gene therapy in Poland and she's able to sit up for the first time mm-hmm. and you know, start having these um, you know, developmental milestones that she was never, never able to have before. And uh, it's just so inspiring to see progress being made in this space. Um, I wanna caveat that with the incredible challenge that comes with gene therapy uh, that I think many scientists in this space are aware of, but perhaps people outside of the space um, don't always appreciate and that is the delivery challenges of things like AAV gene therapy um, and the manufacturing challenges. So, I'm curious if um, either of you, I know, Claire, you recently spoke about this, um, and uh, I'm sure, Emily, you're you're quite familiar with it uh, at Tayshia, but if you could just maybe talk through some of the hurdles that come with taking on uh, developing a therapy in this space of AAV and, and gene therapy.
2: Absolutely, Emily, I'll I'll jump in first since this right. is, you know, part of forms um and and really this problem knowing that it needed to be solved, you know, going back to the statement of, you know, problems that need solving, um it was through my work at Tasia that helped me learn and understand that there was this need. That um, you know our manufacturing process right now is is basically a translation from the academic world, and we haven't done the optimization, we haven't done um, some of the other work to kind of really scale up this manufacturing process. And um, you know, as a result, the products you know we don't have standard standardization in that in that process. And and you've probably heard the process is the product, and um, you know we really at, at form believe that we need to start to think about how do we make these for manufacturing how do we improve the quality of the things that are going into the bioreactors because you're taking this from a you know a small benchtop bioreactor for animal studies to these 2000 liters and you know all of this is um it's a numbers game right like it's a Um, how many times can you replicate your payload so that you will get that into this self-assembling viral particle? And it's not like, um, you know, it's kind of like if you threw all the Legos on the floor and then shook the floor, what would you get? Um, It's not this intentional piece by piece that we're used to doing in our manufacturing process. So I think if we're going to see the true potential of these drugs, of this, you know, molecular revolution for, um, you know, these these advanced biologics, gene therapy, cell therapy, RNA-based therapies, we're going to have to bring some, some rigor to that manufacturing process and start to look at it to say, how do we get more doses and safer doses? You know, we need to have less, um, you know, partially filled particles in there, those are a lot harder to, to um, process out as part of the purification process because it's not as dramatic as empty and full. So we need to uh, improve that so we have more full particles so that the patient is not getting a lot of non-therapeutic particles that their immune system is gonna recognize anyway.
1: You beautifully captured the, the manufacturing process, which is not my expertise. So I'm glad you captured that one, Claire. And I'll I'll just speak to that one of the comments you made, Jocelyn, related to the idea that going from research into the clinic, or even especially to the clinic into the to approval, it is a long process. And what I often hear from patient groups and families is there's a lot of excitement when they learn that let's say UT Southwestern or even a company's working on a compound in a preclinical space. I think that they're, they're anxious for timelines. They want to know and, and 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 I heard, I think it was um, Steve Gray say at UT Southwestern, well science is messy, right? You know, you're you know, you're you're doing your best to develop the the construct that they, you think might work, but but along the way you're learning, which might help you improve that construct. So, from a patient perspective and a broader, I, I think they they look at the idea around and Zolgensma for SMA, which I worked on, and they they don't realize the long path it took to get there from R and D and then through the clinical trials. So it takes time. Um, it's, but it's incredibly hard to communicate that to families who have no hope at all, right? And so how, how you know, one of the things I, I work on the um, ASGCT Patient Outreach Committee and, and they've done some great work around educating um, patients, you know, families and caregivers and, and patients around the, the, the gene therapy development process and that it does take time and it's incredibly complex. Um, and bringing it back to the manufacturing piece, oftentimes you have to do confirmatory trials once you think about the type of manufacturing that you'll need for commercial product. So I love the work that, that um, you guys are doing, Claire, that to hopefully make that easier so that when you do go into that first clinical trial, you're thinking about, okay, this is the process we wanna use, You know, this is the right way to go about it, so.
0: I'm curious. I imagine that you both have a lot of people reach out uh, patients who are seeking uh, potential therapies that you might not be working on, or you might not have um, direct access to or information for. Where do you point them? What do you are there particular resources or organizations that you say, hey, you should go check this out as as a, a potential tool for them?
2: There's a group here in Dallas with some some moms, um, some rare disease moms. It's called Rare Village, and you know that's their mission now. Um, they know through the journeys that they've gone on how hard it was to get started, and so their goal now is to be the place where you can come and get a get a toolkit. You know, it's, you know, kind of like so you've just gotten a devastating diagnosis. Um, you know, here's here's how to start navigating that. Everything from the science that you now need to become an expert in and, and seeking the clinical care to um, you think you might wanna fundraise a- around this. Like just helping these families, especially for diseases where they're very new, there aren't many patients who've even had that mutation identified. And, um, you know, the work that they're doing. And it's some some rare disease moms that that we know through Stephen Gray's work at UT Southwestern. But that's a great organization. And that's their that's their goal is to try to give these other families a leg up that they that they learned through trial and error. But if they can make it easier for the next family, that's what they want to do.
1: Uh, they, that is one amazing organization. Because so there's a lot of different groups out there, but I love what River Village is doing. To your point, Claire, because they they've been through this as parents, and and coming where they both children had genetic diagnosis that they didn't know anything about, and they had to to learn along the way. Um, some other groups that I'll point. Um, people to want, you know, if there is um, a, a disease group that's already been formed, you know, I'll point them in that direction. But other groups that are a bit bigger would be um, Global Genes has some really great resources um, as well as NORD. Um, And then, you know, from a gene therapy perspective, I think ASGCT has done a really nice job of creating patient educational materials as well. There's also this group called the Courageous Parents Network. And each, again, each has their own little flavor, so the Craig's parents network also has has some nice um resources and support for for families well, and are- Casey
2: McPherson's group down in Austin you know he's got a lab um that he's working on his daughter Takira Rose is his oh, foundation
0: yeah Everloom something. Bio I think is yeah. his company yes 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 he's a yeah.
2: delightful delightful man and a fantastic singer-songwriter
0: oh wow <laughs> I didn't know that about him that's very cool I've heard him speak on, uh, there used to be a Clubhouse, um, Gene Fixers uh, Clubhouse show. Not sure if they've moved it somewhere else, but um, yeah, some some great folks in that community, Ethan Perlstein as well. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Do you want to just, any shout outs? Where can people find you? Um, yeah, anything else you wanted to, to touch on before we wrap up?
2: Oh, absolutely, Um, you know, FormBio spun out of Colossal, the de-extinction company, but we're really committed to improving molecular medicines and how we can make better, safer molecular medicines. You can find us at formbio.com and we'll be at ASGCT as well as SynBio SynBio Beta. um, And we're really excited about the future of
0: TechBio. Awesome.
1: And what about you, Emily? (laughs) So if you want to learn more about Taysha and the work we're doing, we have a website, taisha-gtx.com. Again, focusing on um, neurological conditions um, using an AAV9 vector. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can find me um, on LinkedIn as well. So, um, Same. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome.
0: Well, we'll make sure to link all of the the resources and, and websites you guys mentioned and, um, I learned so much uh, from you both today. Really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your insights with our listeners. And I can't wait to to share this with everyone. So thank you so much for being here. Jocelyn, thank you so much for having us.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Always fun to get together with Claire and with you too now, Jocelyn. This is fun. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That wraps up my interview with Emily McGinnis and Claire Aldridge. I learned so much from their experience and I hope you did too. If you enjoyed the topic of working on rare diseases, please check out my previous interview with Madeline Oden. She's a researcher at Tufts University. And thanks so much for listening to Lady Scientist Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. We really appreciate it. So thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.